I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You once said you have to cheat in order to get down to essentials. Yes, Do I you was mean- drunk. You was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to ask you, do you mean simply that you have to make films like Marie Chantal and the Tiger films? Yes. Uh, in order to be able to make La Fama Fidel? No, it was in order to be able to pay my taxes. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the BFI podcast, six months in on cheating and drinking our way the essentials. I'm Henry Barnes and this episode I'll be in the company of not one but two roguish renegades. The BFI's online news editor Sam Wigley. Hi Sam. Hi. And Claude Chabrol, the late French new wave filmmaker who Sam has picked as this episode's subject. Sam will be hearing from Claude in a bit but first we build these podcasts around archive audio from our library, a collection that dates back to 1957 and includes interviews with everyone from Altman to Zeffirelli. What is it about Chabrol that made you pick him? He's long been a favourite of mine. He's a kind of master of the exact coolly observed icy thrillers that I'm a a big fan of. Often very disturbing French films that have given him the label the the French Hitchcock, which makes him kind of a precursor to people like Brian De Palma or Michael Haneke. He emerged out of the French New Wave, but was much more commercial than people like Goddard and Truffaut. Um, And he's made a body of work that is very, very large with a number of classics in it, but not that many people seem to know very well. So I thought he'd be a good subject for the pod. There's a story that he essentially kicked off the French New Wave, right, by, I believe, taking his wife's money at the time and financing one of the early films. Is that right? He didn't take his wife's money. <laughs> he, he used uh, the inheritance that um, she got from a dead uh, parent um, and used it to fund his first film, Le Beau Serge, which is considered to be the first French New Wave film, yeah. Do you remember when you first saw one of his films? What was the experience like? Uh, it was actually... I can date it because in researching this, I found the BBC Two ident for it being on TV when I was 13. Um, and it was just on TV one night and I taped it. It was Le Boucher, uh, which is a kind of a serial killer film. Um, and I just completely fell for it. I was really into Hitchcock at the time and it seemed to hit some of the same um, sort of pleasure centres, if you like. Est-ce que vous aimez la viande? Returning after 15 years in the army, a local butcher falls in love with a young headmistress. Seulement jamais faire l'amour, ça rend dingue. C'est rouge. Dans les environs, peut-être même en ville. 
Il y a un fou, vous comprenez Claude Chabrol's psychological thriller Le Boucher begins a season of classic French cinema. Tomorrow at 10.55 on 2. In the film Helene, a young school teacher befriends Popol, the local butcher. Their friendship blossoms even as Helene begins to wonder whether Popol started to practice his trade on the local women folk. Here's Claude Chabrol speaking at the then National Film Theatre in 1971. He wanted to uh, show uh, that uh, the. It's very difficult to say it in English, you see. Uh, the. For me, the primitive. Primitive instincts. Yes. Primitive instincts of uh, anybody uh, are not. Absolutely damnable, con- condemnable. Because uh, if you think to the prehistoric man, you can, you must uh, understand that if he was, if he was not uh, primitive, if he was not a brute. Uh, the human being will be eaten by the dinosaurs. He grew up and obviously in France, the son of a pharmacist. He developed a very early passion for film and became a film critic on the journal Cahiers de Cinema, which was a kind of launching ground for uh, a lot of his contemporaries as well, like Jean-Luc Godard and Francois Truffaut. He's really the first of those new wave filmmakers, but he also becomes a mentor to some of the others because he funds the other debuts with profits from his own first two films. What comes across from a lot of his films is this sense of being really playful. And like, whereas some of the other French new wave filmmakers seemed quite austere on occasion or melancholy people, he seemed of that gang to be the kind of, I don't know, the Terry Gilliam of <laughs> that, that unit. He was definitely the most sort of commercially minded of the pair. I mean, after critics and audiences began to lose interest in some of his early French New Wave films, he then found himself working in Euro-spy films in the mid-60s, which were kind of riffs and parodies on the James Bond series, which there's certainly nothing like that in the in the Goddard canon, for example. He made something like 60 films over a 50-year career. I mean, is there any kind of common themes amongst that body of work, or is it all quite disparate? No, definitely. I mean, he was continually drawn to murder, crime, infidelity, betrayal. Um, but these... While they have some similarities with stuff like Ruth Rendell and Agatha Christie, he wasn't really so much about who done it as kind of analysing their psychological motives and, and how, they, how they behave afterwards. So why they did it? Not even necessarily why they did it, but their their behaviour afterwards as they kind of deal with the guilt and how they kind of settle back into their lives after this crime or how they continue their relationships with their, the other people around them. And of all those films, do you have a favourite? Uh, one of my absolute favourites is a film he made in 1970 called La Rupture, which just completely shocked me when I saw it. It begins with um, a father throwing his baby across the room um, in a very, very disturbing scene. This is a character you are then made to sympathise with later in a very strange way. Je me souviens de tout, tu sais. Je me souviens. Oui, 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 il va bien, tout va bien. And it ends in the kind of psychedelic sequence with Stefan Audran, who appears in many of his films at the time, taking some strange psychedelic and it all going very strange indeed. 
I think you're revealing hidden grotesque depths in your own personality here, <laughs> Sam. If I was more courageux, uh, courageous, courageous, yes, j'aurais montré un show much more blood. Sam, I think Chabrol's being a bit self-effacing about his courage there, but was he a grisly filmmaker? Did his films have a lot of blood? There's definitely grisly elements, but I think you can get a bit misled by some of the titles with films like The Girl Cut In Two and The Blood of Others and Wedding in Blood. He's not someone you go for masses of bloodletting. Um, in fact, there's a, one of the most memorable bits in Le Boucher that struck me as a, a, a teenager was a scene where some blood drip. There's a kind of school children's picnic outside and some blood drops onto a perfectly white bit of sliced bread in a, that a girl's about to put into her mouth and it's come from a dead body that's then discovered kind of above them and so there is grisly elements but it's really about the tiny speck of blood in that case it's not we're a long way from the, the gushing tsunamis of the shining and that film opens with a wedding banquet is that right where the butcher's carving meat for the guests i mean chabrol was obsessed with food as well he was a kind of in a way a stereotypical french gourmand um, there's stories uh, a film he made shortly after that um, wedding of blood apparently he made it in uh, the Alsace region simply to try the region's local foods uh, another of my favorite quotes by him actually which kind of gets to the heart of his slightly despairing worldview but with a kind of twinkle in the eyes he said that uh, you know we live in a world where pizzas arrive more quickly than the police and often those meal settings were kind of set up as almost uh, a display case for satire, right? Like he was about to take apart the middle classes and their propensity to sit down and have a big, fat, rich, luxurious meal. That's right. I mean, it's a bit of self-criticism there because yeah. he was definitely one of those bourgeois people who, who loved a good meal himself. But um, yeah, he for him, scenes around the breakfast table or around lunch or dinner in restaurants or at home were really kind of theatres for examining human behaviour and the sort of anxieties between between people and the tensions bubbling underneath. Let's hear a clip of Chabrol himself on why restaurants and meal settings are a tasty location for drama. Each time you go in a restaurant, you can see uh, at a table a man and a woman, and the woman is crying, always, almost always. <laughs> and uh, it is very interesting. Because uh, you try to find wine, and uh, the waiter is comes and slowly, and it's, it's very charming. You see. It's like, um, well, I I suppose the the girl will cry less uh, in a restaurant than uh, in, in an, another, another, place. another place. Yes. Can we move on to a bit later in his career? He started working with Isabel Huppert. What was the significance of their relationship together? Well, after that string of films with Stefan Ojan, he she really passes the baton to Huppert in 78 with the film Violette Nausier, which was actually one of the films that launched Huppert's career. She plays a real-life teen in 1930s France who creeps out of her uh, parents' house to become be a prostitute in the night, and then uh, possibly as an act of... Uh, rebellion against her middle-class parents and then attempts to poison her her parents as well into the bargain. A hugely controversial film that's actually quite difficult to see now, although many rank it as one of his very best films. But it becomes a launch pad for this relationship with Huppert that stems right up to 
um, some great films in the 90s uh, and 2000s, such as La Ceremony, another key Chabrol film, and uh, Merci pour la Chocolat. Why do you think they work together quite so well? I think anyone who's who's a big fan of Huppert as well knows that she she's drawn to these slightly transgressive characters, uh, very independent, very ambiguous and uh, in their motivations sometimes. And that's exactly what a Chabrol hero or, or heroine typically is. Uh, so th- I think they were kindred spirits in that regard. And not stereotypically female as well. Uh, definitely not, no. Um, which in a way is different from uh, his earlier films. So in... La Ceremony, which comes in 1995, she plays uh, the very chirpy but calculating local postmistress who befriends the new maid in a, a middle-class family and proceeds to upset the apple cart in strange ways, a, a little bit like a French version of The Hand That Rots the Cradle, uh, but with some very dark and finally rather brutal results. He always saw me in this sort of, uh, of stories, where women are in in, a, in prison, you know, and they dream their lives, and uh, and they have to survive, you know, and they are victims, but they are active victims. And uh, I, I in in Chabrol's movies, you know, I always find the possibility to to express. That's Isabel Huppert talking about how she saw her roles in Chabrol's films. These clips are taken from a couple of interviews, one recorded at the then National Film Theatre in 1992 and one in the same location ten years later. He's uh, one of those directors who speaks about the, uh, about the women like uh, like few people, not, not few people, some people do it more and more, but it's a new way of, uh, of portraying women, you know. It's, it's uh, portraying women uh, who try to get out of the dependence of a man's world, you know. They, they, want, they are survivors for that, you know. They want to escape from a male domination, you know. Sam, the strong impression I get of Chabrol is of a man who dealt with dark subject matter with a lightness of touch and almost a cheery attitude. If you listen to the archive we have of him, there are moments when he's uh, just playing with the audience and he's a full-on comedian. And he seems like a filmmaker who loved making movies but didn't take it too seriously. So here's a clip of him talking about directing his long-term cinematographer, Jean Rabier. See, it is very difficult for me to make a film without him. For instance, uh, he says, uh, do you want more green or more blue? I say more blue, of course. He's a very precise and very controlled filmmaker. There are some fantastic sort of aesthetic effects in his films, but he definitely differs from Hitchcock in that he didn't storyboard everything down to every last detail. He's not a perfectionist. I, I think, you know, it was this quality that made, enabled him to make quite so many films. I kind of think of him a bit like Bob Dylan, you know, he just likes to kind of churn things out for the creativity aspect of it. And it's just because he's so smart... It, Luckily, so many things have Some of it's good. turn up. <laughs> well, a great deal of it is is fantastic, but yeah. he's not bothered about making a masterpiece. He's just kind of on to the next one. What's Chabrol's legacy? Who's carrying on in the same spirit as what he did? 
I think most uh, most influence that I see is really in in French cinema, in Michael Haneke's sort of cinema of unease, that of films like Hidden and Code Unknown, but also in certain Francois on films like Swimming Pool and uh, more recently the the New Girlfriend, and I think most recently of all there was uh, L with Isabelle Huppert that Paul Verhoeven made, uh, which is very Chabrolian. The fact that you know it begins with uh, Huppert's character being you know, sexually assaulted and then just doesn't take you anywhere like the direction that you expected to go in. Is he somebody that people are referencing still? Or, I mean, either explicitly or just in their filmmaking? Or is he kind of somebody that's been forgotten? I think he's definitely in the, in the shadow of the other French New Wave filmmakers, which is a, a real shame because, to, uh, to my mind, his body of work is as rich as Hitchcock's. He's got as many sort of five-star, ten-out-of-ten films to his name as Hitchcock has. Is that part of the reason why you like him as well, that you can hold him close and make him your own? <laughs> Partly also, but it's uh, also the fact that every time I look at his filmography, there's a new film that I didn't even know existed before. You know, I found out about one the other day that's kind of got Donald Sutherland's character from Clute in, as a kind of a sequel in, set in Montreal that I'd never seen before. There's another film from uh, the early 90s, which is a remake of uh, Fritz Lang's Dr. Mabuse and the Gambler with Andrew McCarthy from Weekend at Bernie's. In. <laughs> and now you've piqued people's interests. Where can people find out more about him? Well, there's a, a load of books on Chabrol and the French New Wave in the library at BFI South Bank. But if you want to kind of dive into some films, then you could check out the top 10 Chabrol feature on the BFI website by Craig Williams, which actually includes some films I've not even seen, including an Alice in Wonderland adaptation. It's taken this long for the podcast to mention that he's made a film of Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> and finally we got our plugs in as well so <laughs> that's it for this episode of the BFI podcast. Sam and I are off to eat a big meal, drink a lot of wine and wallow in our bourgeois privilege before no doubt meeting a sticky end. Before we do I'd like to say thanks to Sam for the Chabrol primer. You can find him on Twitter at, at @sjwigley. Find me on the same at, at Henry H. Barnes and listen to all of our back episodes on SoundCloud or iTunes. If you listen and you like what you hear, please rate and review the show. We are, surprise, surprise, no different really from any other podcast out there. Ratings and reviews help us reach the ears of other attractive, discerning listeners, much like yourselves. This episode of the BFI podcast was written by Sam Wigley and presented and edited by me, Henry Barnes. Additional production was provided by Peter Sale. For more on Pete's work, go to petersale.co.uk. Special thanks to Sarah Curran in the BFI's library for digging up the Chabrol and Hopper audio. And thanks to Peter Stanley for transferring it from tape. The BFI podcast will be back in a few weeks with another dig into our audio archives. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Bon chance and au revoir.